This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. Hello, this is Tobias for Software Engineering Radio. In this episode, Randy Schaub and I will carry on talking about social and cultural aspects of working in the software industry, as we did in episode 208. While working for Kixi, Google and eBay, Randy has gained lots of insights on how companies can maintain good company culture and today he will share his opinions on that topic with us. Hello Randy, I'm very glad to have you back on the show. Nice talking with you, Tobias. I'm happy to be back. Before we start our today's topic, I wanted to ask you whether you want to add something to our previous discussion on hiring in the software industry. Maybe you have even changed your mind on some statements you did, and so here would be your chance of rectifying them. No, I wouldn't say that I've changed my mind. I still have believed for years that it's particularly important to hire, well, particularly for engineering positions, hire top engineers. But as we discussed at length, you know, in our last episode, there's less of an objective uh, definition of the best engineer. In other words, there's no one person who's best for every possible job, but um, you do need to find the right match of skills and interests and abilities to um, to a particular culture and a particular organization. And to me, that's, you know, finding that right fit is is super important. But as we also discussed, you know, if you can find the highest performers, you know, the highest performers are about 10 times as top as uh, well performing as the lowest performer. So it's it's very much in your interest as an organization to hire a small group of very top performers as distinct from a very large group of uh, sort of average or below average performers. And how do you weigh the importance of skills versus cultural fit in the end? Sure. I think you need both. Uh, it's not one of those things where one is more important than the other, but it's critical to have both. You know, obviously it's a, you know, in order to do your job as an engineer, you need to have the the skills and the tools and so on to be able to, to do that. But also, you know, there's a well-known idea of the difficult genius or, you know, there are lots of more pejorative phrases for it, but it's not enough to be simply excellent at your job. You also have to be good at collaborating and also have to fit well in with the team culture. Um, so I think they're equally important. Okay. And what about close cultural fit versus people who try to bring new ideas or new cultural aspects to a company? Oh, that's an excellent question. Yeah, let me just say that in order for somebody to be a cultural fit, I don't think it means they need to be the same as everybody else. <laughs> um, again, I'll go back to the analogy of you don't want to build a factory where everything is the same. You want to build a symphony where different instruments, or we said a rock band, I think last time. Yeah, I think. Um, you want to, have, you know, you don't want to have all guitarists. You don't want to have all percussion. You don't want to have all singers. You want to have a mix of all those things. And so, you know, if you take an example of a rock band, um, you know, the singer might come out of a jazz tradition, but still, you know, is an excellent rock singer. And you know what I mean? Like people bring their different skills and interests and abilities. And it's the merging of those differences together into the team that I think makes it makes it good. So I just want to be clear that cultural fit very much does not mean sameness. It means fitting like a puzzle piece, you know, where we're not not everybody's the same shape, but it all fits together and makes this wonderful whole. Does that make sense? It does, definitely. But it basically means that while deciding whether this person will fit in your team or not, you're very much dependent on your personal intuition and experience in hiring people, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think humans are very good at immediately determining whether somebody else is friendly or approachable. Or I mean, we do this very unconsciously and we do that in milliseconds. Um, so I, I would listen carefully to, you know, if you have, a, obviously, I think, Well, just be explicit. I think the whole team should interview pretty much everybody. I mean, assuming the team is reason small enough, so that's that's uh, 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 possible. But um, 
but I, I believe that sort of everybody ought to interview everybody more or less and listen carefully to people who say they don't like the candidate. You know, there's a reason for that, even if it's hard for them to articulate. So, yeah, I, I think that people are very good at uh, determining cultural fit, friendliness, uh, collaboration very quickly. And uh, we should listen to those things. Um, that, that's what I believe. We have now talked a lot about company culture without actually saying what it is. Uh, would you uh, try to give a definition of company culture as a term? Boy, it's just as hard to define a company culture, I think, as, as it would be to define a national culture or something like that. Um, but I'd put together, I, I'd think of it as the principles upon which we all behave together. You know, there are the sometimes spoken and often unspoken norms of behavior, right? So, you know, in human cultures, it's about how, it's about what are, what are the standards and norms of people relating to one another? And if I, if I apply that to an engineering organization, it's, well, how do we treat one another? How do we react when uh, things don't go well? How do we react when things do go well? Um, what kind of collaboration do we have? Um, I think all those things are aspects of culture. And so what I'm, what I'm intentionally excluding from culture are things like the particular process that we have, whether it's agile or waterfall or something in between, uh, the particular technologies we use, you know, so I wouldn't think of a Java culture or an agile culture. Um, I think it's, a, I think to me, a company culture is more, kind of fundamental than that. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. I think you might have a different, I don't know, but I think you might have a different culture in a plumber company versus a, uh, versus an engineering company. But you know what? Um, a lot of the principles are very much the same. <laughs> I guess so. Yes. Well, at least I hope. Um, so do you think there is good company culture and some sort of toxic company culture? Or do you think that every company has a culture and this is fixed? Maybe the culture can change, but it doesn't really have an effect on how the company behaves and how the company works. Oh, uh, I absolutely believe that there are, com there are company cultures that are more effective and less effective. Um, and I think that um, I've spoken about this quite a lot, actually, recently at conferences. I think that the, the culture of the company has almost more power than anything else. I mean, more influence over the long-term success of the company than just about anything else um, uh, that's true at, at, that uh, the company has, you know, whether it's process or like it's easier to change process and technology and much harder to change culture. Uh, so do I believe there are such things as toxic cultures? Absolutely, I do. And we all know this from our own from our own experience, right? I mean, we have companies that we've if we've worked at several companies, we have companies that we enjoyed working at more than others. Um, if we think in our personal lives, you know, we are, there are groups of friends or parts of our family sometimes, you know, that we really love being with that are energizing and exciting and fun. And then there are groups of people that we are with where it becomes depressing and unpleasant. And, you know, I think that's just as true for, com for companies as it is for anything else. Okay. And you are talking in the videos I've seen, um, about monitoring or measuring um, the success of your software and that it is very important to do it and um, at the same time really hard, of course. And when it comes down to finding key performance identifiers or KPIs that show how successful a game is, I think I can follow this idea. But what about KPIs for a working culture? Do you think you can find some sort of numbers or generate numbers that can show whether a company culture is good or healthy or even toxic then on the other mm. end? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, that one's a hard, that's, that's hard. It's even harder to identify than what's, what's a good KPI for software. But off the top of my head, I can think of a few examples. So um, well, let's start with 
the business the business metrics of the company are a good indicator about whether it's successful and it's be hard to un, you know if the business is doing well it's hard to unpack whether that's from the culture or the process or the technology or the people um, but a good indicator that things aren't going well is when the business isn't but in terms particularly of culture well culture is about people and so I guess I would say several things. One is one would be metrics around um, hiring and retention. Um, so particularly retention as a metric, how easy, how easy or difficult it is it to is it to retain people at the company? Um, and then on the flip side, how difficult or easy is it to um, to hire new people? In particular, um, if it's a great company culture, then people that work there want to hire their friends. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, and so I don't, I wouldn't know how to assign exact appropriate numbers to this, but one, in, one indicator might be, you know, the rate at which we're hiring people through reference versus through, you know, using a recruiting service or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Because, um, if it's a great culture, uh, the employees are more, a more incented to go out and, you know, try to um, recruit their friends and be those friends are more likely to come. <laughs> but then the other metrics, I think, uh, that indicate a bunch about, you know, culture and process, you know, and uh, there's hardly a, there's not always a bright line there. So one area that you can also look at, I think, success is the rate of success of the project. You know, um, a toxic culture often ends up where this isn't a direct relationship, but a toxic culture often uh, exhibits itself in being difficult to uh, having a, the organization. It's difficult to um, uh, do new projects, keep them on track, and so on. Do you know what I mean? Because the 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 a toxic culture sort of ends up being a drag on the efficiency of the organization. Um, so one indicator um, would be around um, how smoothly you know the organization develops new projects and finishes current ones but i'm not sure i expressed that well but um i hope that makes sense that i think that i, I guess i'll think if i say it in the reverse way one indicator of a bad culture might be that it's hard to get things done <laughs> yes of course well sometimes it takes a lot of insight to actually get to this result i think but um and then from the outside, I think sometimes you only see the good culture, like, and I name them too often, but um, like Google, they have a great company culture. At least everybody is saying this. And so you know this, but you don't really know whether they are um, deploying their tools quick or whether there is a lack of performance and therefore maybe a reason in the company culture. But still... From the inside, I would see this KPI as a good good number. Referring to your experiences being an employee without the power of actually changing certain circumstances, I would like to ask you how a company can actually develop a healthy and empowering company culture. And how is company culture communicated in this case? Uh, sure. So I think uh, the the culture again is sort of the unspoken norms of behavior. Um, and that culture can change by people behaving differently. So let's take a particular example. Um, I think on a very important part of company culture is collaborating well. So that means working together with members of your own team, you know, working in a friendly and helpful and uh, collaborative way with people that are on your same team, but also inter-team collaboration, right? Collaboration within, within, with, uh, between other teams. We trust other teams to do their jobs. Um, we, uh, we help them when we can. We uh, have good relationships with them and so on. Um, and, you know, by contrast, lots of, uh, a number of company cultures that are known to be toxic or have a lot of backbiting and you know, infighting, you know, um, between, between individual team members, individual teams. So, um, so what could, so what can an individual do is start behaving, uh, better. I mean, and that sounds kind of silly and easy and not enough, but it really is. I mean, it can start with just one or several people of doing good work on your own part and 
trusting others to do the same, you know? Um, and I think that's a long, that can be a virus, if you like, a, a good virus that, that can spread itself. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Sorry. So, uh, sorry for interrupting. You were, I mean, you were essentially asking what could somebody do in the grassroots? And I think that's an example. Yes, definitely. Definitely. From the, from the other point of point of view, do you believe in CEOs or HR or CTOs or whoever being able to implement a great culture too, much like a so-called good king? Well, so the, the thing about one of the main things about company cultures is, um, you know, companies start small and they get larger, right? You know, no company forms at 54,000 people like Google, um, but it starts Uh, it, it starts small and it starts with the leadership, you know? So, I mean, taking the example of, uh, of Google, where, which, where I did work and I, I do genuinely believe it's a wonderful company culture, particularly for engineers, you know, it's not perfect. Nothing is, but it's a, it's a very, very welcoming, very collaborative, uh, very effective culture overall for lots of the reasons that we all know. Um, and you know, the two, the two co-founders, Larry and Sergey, when they started, you know, this is way earlier than my time, but They clearly uh, thought carefully about creating a culture of openness, of really strong, uh, really strong people, of individual responsibility, of autonomy. Um, and they've spoken about this um, internally and externally for years. And that is still true. You know, those those influences that they started, you know, whatever, 15 years ago um, are still there in the culture today. Um, so yes, I absolutely do believe that culture is strongly influenced, um, from the top and whether the top is, you know, the co-founders or the head of a particular business unit or something like that. I think that's extremely, uh, extremely important and very insightful question. Since we are talking about a 55,000 people company, do you know a way or can you think of a way to bring together the grassroots and the big CEOs and to enable both to influence the culture? You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Yeah. How can everybody all work together? And I mean, in some sense, that's almost the definition of a good culture, right? Is that, uh, is that there's uh, openness and in some sense, ease, uh, where everybody's contributing. Um, and in many ways, you know, uh, uh, difficult cultures are in many, in some ways defined by how hard it is to get things done and how hard things are to change. Do you know what I mean? Um, in an open culture, and again, we're using, we're using Google as this example, the, the founders have a great influence on the company, obviously. Um, more than any other individuals, but, but also, but what's great about it is that there's a lot of autonomy and openness and individuals can contribute as well. So I think there's, I think it doesn't need to be, it's not an either or, if that makes any sense, you know, uh, a good culture is one where everybody's, everybody's making it better just a little bit at a time. And what are you thinking about dividing a company in countries? So to say that you have Google or in my case, CSC America, USA and CSC or Google Germany and both have a different culture or do you think the whole company needs to have the same culture? Oh, great question. Uh, no, I think one of the defining characteristics of a good culture is that it's accepting of sort of lots of individuality and autonomy. Um, And I mean, I'll, let me just, I'll, I'll give an example. I'll sort of zero down into an example of, you know, engineering organizations that I've run and then pop up a little bit to a large company. So in a, in an, or an engineering organization that sort of numbered in the hundreds, not in the, uh, not in the tens of thousands, the best way I've found for to organize is to have small teams where people are responsible for fully responsible for their own little areas, you know, three people, five people. Amazon has a wonderful term called two pizza teams where you should never have a team that's so large that it cannot be fed by two pizzas. Um, and, uh, all those, you know, all those individual teams should, you know, have their own things that they build services or products or whatever. Um, and rely on one another through contracts and so on. Um, so now let's pop up 
and I think that's an extremely effective way to run an engineer organization to get things done. Um, now let's pop up, you know, several more orders of magnitude. And I think that same idea applies to a country by country organization of a large multinational company, whether it's, you know, Google or eBay or CSC or whatever, um, trying to impose a globe, a, a single global culture, I think is, is not likely to be successful. Um, because as we all know, you know, individual areas around the world, people are different from one another and what's going to work well in, I'm making this up. Singapore is not going to be the same as in Vancouver or this, or in Berlin or in, you know, Madras. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's everything right about that. <laughs> um, it's, a be the best way to take advantage of the talent that we that exists all over the world is kind of working with the local talent as opposed to trying to impose some <laughs> you know global imperialist culture if that makes any sense yes when we talk about two pizza teams and um you know having the the grassroots develop the company culture What do you think? Is there a need of actually communicating the company culture? Like we, we all know those, those PowerPoint slides where the company culture is introduced and we all know those websites and webinars and onboarding things. Do you actually think that this is needed or is it just practice and people working together and showing the culture by living it? So I, th uh, that's an excellent question. And I think it's not either or. So I think there's no one way to communicate the culture, but that it should continue to be communicated in all those different ways. So let's, so a PowerPoint by itself is not enough. A web, a web, a webinar or an internal, uh, uh, website is not enough, but it continues to reinforce those ideas. And while, I've heard and experienced myself some cynicism, I'll admit, about, you know, uh, particularly mission statements and big things, you know, uh, these very high level principles of big companies. You know, we're engineers, we're, we're, uh, want to be cynical about such things. But you know what? They are very helpful because they, even though they're pithy statements of uh, intent, they're a good barometer, they're a good, uh, guidepost, you know, so we can, so if somebody's behaving, you know, if we have, I hope that, you know, a company culture we design will have something around collaboration and something around autonomy and so on. And, you know, those principles are good things for people to be able to point to, right. And say, Hey, uh, you know, Randy, I see that you're not really behaving in this way. Maybe I wonder if there's a more collaborative way to have, you know, done the thing that you, that you wanted to do or something like that. Um, I, I, I find those things, I find those things valuable, but, uh, I'll be the first to say that, you know, if the only way that let's say it this way, if the only way we can, we communicate the company culture is through PowerPoints that HR writes, that's not a very effective situation. Do you know what I mean? That's not enough by itself. Um, I think the, the true power comes in living it, but the, uh, but one way you can reinforce people living it is by communicating these kind of generic principles. D does that make sense? Some minutes ago, you were talking about employees um, leaving and new developers coming on board. And that leads me to a question, which is, is turnover of employees good or bad? And do you want people to move on if they are not engaged or not in line with the culture? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as with any metric like this, you know, it's not a situation, you know, turnover, the often higher turnover is an indicator of a problem, but zero turnover is another kind of problem. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, so there's an, there's an optimal level of turnover in any organization, right? Because for lots of, I mean, there are lots of reasons why people, lots of good reasons why people decide to leave a company that have nothing to do with their job or their culture or whatever. Okay. I'm moving to another country. Well, great. All right. I can no longer work for my current company. Let's say, you know, that's, that's a fine reason for people to leave. Um, 
Or frankly, they find, you know, actually, I have a friend from Google who left to go make chocolate for a living, you know, and I totally admire him. <laughs> um, so and there, there's nothing wrong. I mean, he makes wonderful chocolate. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, uh, with that turnover. That's that's one that the, the overall society should encourage, you know, people like him to go follow his dream and make chocolate, um, even though he was a wonderful, uh, a wonderful employee at Google. Um, anyway, so, you know, I don't believe that, I don't believe that you're not suggesting this, but I don't believe that zero turnover is the right, um, goal either. And frankly, you know, I'll use another example that's kind of funny, um, fraud in lots of, in lots of areas at, you know, eBay or finance or whatever, there is actually an optimal amount of fraud and it's not zero in lots of situations. If fraud is zero, uh, it actually means that there's very, um, that the system is too closed and tight. <laughs> um, there's, there's probably a long philosophical discussion about that. Um, but anyway, I, I, I don't think that optimal level of turnover is zero. Okay. Interesting example. I think I need to think about it, but I don't know if you can say a number here or if anyone can say a number, but is there a too much in terms of turnover, be it, um, people simply leaving or people getting fired? So there absolutely is an optimal number um, or there is a, there is for sure too much, you know, and, and that's, that's intuitively obvious, right? Like if, if we had a company of a hundred people and 50 people left every year for whatever reason, like that would be really difficult to sustain that company. Right. Um, I've never heard of a company that's like that, but um, uh, there, yeah, there's absolutely too much, but you know, Specific numbers are are very much going to vary by industry, by country, by even by type of job. You know, there are more there's more turnover in. I think typically it's understood that there are more turnover in sort of customer service type jobs than there are in other. You know, just you know, there are different types of jobs that are where there's more turnover and less turnover and. And, but there's definitely a, there's definitely a concept of too much. I mean, it's sort of intuitively obvious that there has to be, right? Yes, I hope so, at least. Yeah, right. Let's imagine a hundred percent turnover every day. You know, I mean, that's clearly wrong too. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Well, can you give us an example of a non-successful way of dealing with employees or toxic or? dysfunctional company cultures? Uh, sure. Yeah. I, I, there are lots of examples I can think of. One example that I'll give for engineering um, is uh, a practice that we had at eBay. Um, actually, when I joined, I joined just about 10 years ago uh, at eBay and I was there for six and a half years. And I'll take pains to say straight away, eBay does not do this practice anymore. It's been a long time since they have. So This is this is very much reflective of eBay as of you know circa 2006, let's say, rather than now. Um, so eBay had a practice that was that we called train seats, um, and a train seat itself was just a measure of engineering effort. So um, uh, eBay released the whole site at the time they were releasing the whole site every two weeks. So that and that was a train, you know. So the train uh, for this two week period would you know, leave the station at a particular time and so on. And the idea was that, you know, features that we were trying to develop to go on the site would either be on the train or not. Okay. So that's the general analogy is that every two weeks the train leaves and uh, goes to the site and a train seat was uh, a clever uh, name for the amount of effort that an engineer would put in for two weeks. Right. So it's sort of two engineer weeks worth of effort. Um, and there's, so, so far there's nothing wrong. Um, But the the one of the things that was really uh, difficult engineering wise for the culture was the way that that um, practice ended up working was that, you know, somebody would come some product manager or somebody would come up with an idea of, okay we're going to build this new feature. Great. okay so then they'd assign somebody some engineer would be assigned to estimate the effort for that for that project. So they would scope it, we would say. Right. So all right, the scope for this project is going to be, you know, eight train seats. In other words, 16 engineer weeks worth of work. Okay, so, so far, so good. Um, but now the problem was that that person that scoped the work was not going to do the work, right? So the work ended up being, um, the engineers were sort of treated like a big pool. 
And so those 16, you know, those eight train seats worth of work could get assigned to basically eight random engineers for one two-week period each or one engineer for eight two-week periods or four engineers each for two-week periods and so on. So um, get assigned in a, in a sort of uh, random way to uh, engineers. Um, and that is the, you know, that, that part of the culture which treated the engineers like these sort of undifferentiated cogs was really problematic. Um, it was problematic from a personal perspective because it didn't, it treated engineers li- literally like interchangeable, fungible uh, pieces of machinery. So that didn't feel good as an engineer. But more importantly, f- um, for the output, um, so the person who des- who essentially designed the implementation of the project, right, the guy who scoped it and said and wrote this estimate didn't implement it. So that person you know, even though that person was, you know, well-meaning and did it, you know, tried to do the best job he or she could, there was no incentive in the, in the, in the process for that person to make it easy or hard or whatever to, to build it. And, um, and by contrast, the people who were building the project had no, essentially no say in designing it. So the incentives are completely wrong there. Nobody really had an end-to-end view of, um, doing things properly and even worse. And again, this is even with everybody being well-meaning, you know, so let, I'm not assuming anybody is, is evil or, you know, in any way, but just everybody trying to do the best job they can. There's no incentive to do the, the, the there's actual disincentive to do things properly. You know, the scoper was always, you know, strongly encouraged to make the estimate as low as possible. So, but you know, was not actually in the code. So there was no understanding of, you know, what the trade-offs would be and so on. Um, but then the word, one of the worst aspects of that. So, you know, engineers treated like fungible cogs and essentially randomly assigned to projects, but then they'd be random. Then a given engineer would be randomly assigned to some other project. And so there was no long-term ownership of any particular part of the code base. Right. So all of these things were extremely, toxic to the engineering culture and really made it difficult to get things done in the long term. You know, so um, there was predictable. One of the reasons why this was designed, the pro of it is that it's predictable in some sense when things get released, but the quality of the resulting project that gets released and more importantly, the, the technical debt that gets accumulated over and over and over again in the code base um, ended up slowing eBay down for, for a long, long time. So uh, I think a much better culture, which I think is where eBay is more now, and certainly you know other companies like Google and Netflix and Amazon, is the complete opposite of that, right? So small teams, again, that are wholly and completely responsible for a particular area, again, a particular service or a particular product or a particular tool, and that own it end to end. Um, and are responsible for their own roadmaps, are autonomous uh, from one another, and are um, you sort of get to choose their own tools and techniques and languages and so on, but are held responsible for the results of those choices. I mean, to me, um, and this is true not just subjectively, but objectively in terms of the output, that kind of uh, culture, that kind of organization is much more effective. Um, does that make sense? It does. And this whole notion of full autonomy for the teams is something um, which is really appealing to me, but exciting as well and not always in the good part. Because um, I think or maybe I've, I've just got the feeling that you can go a bit too far in terms of autonomy. Do you think that you can go too far or is it just full autonomy is the best you can get? Uh, you can go too far, but that's why autonomy needs to be balanced with responsibility. So if you only do autonomy, everybody gets to make their own choices. I mean, that's essentially the definition of anarchy, <laughs> right? Uh, so that's clearly wrong. Um, But starting from the principle of, look, individual teams get to choose their own tools and their own working environments. If we start from that, but then we add to it, and Mr. Team, you're responsible for the results of those choices, right? So 
this particular, let's, you know, let's take a particular example. This particular team, you know, this particular three person, five person team is responsible for building and maintaining the XYZ service. Okay. Well, there are other, other teams in the company that are dependent on that XYZ service. So it needs to be, uh, it needs to function well. It needs to stay up. It needs to perform well. Um, and you know, so from the outside, it really shouldn't matter what technology choices, for example, inside, you know, that team makes inside that service. But what does matter is the, is the outside effects of those choices, right? If the system is going down all the time or it performs poorly or it's, a, uh, it's inefficient, um, you know, all those, all those things are the responsibility or, you know, you need to, we need to hold the team accountable for the results of those choices. So I like to say, the way I like to think about it is I like to give a team a goal rather than a solution, right? Um, so, you know, your goal, this particular team, XYZ service team is build and maintain and operate the XYZ service um, and enhance it going forward and so on. And you own that thing, but, and, you know, you get to make your own choices, but you're responsible for the results of those choices. Now, let me also say that, the other fear that people might have, a legitimate fear that people might have about granting autonomy to teams is, well, gosh, what if everybody chooses an entirely different language? What if everybody chooses a different development environment, a different editor, a different, you know, I mean, what if there's no, there's no standardization in the company? That's, that's very inefficient in itself. True. Um, so that's why, uh, again, the responsibility, the choice should be of the team, but it should, but the, the company overall hopefully makes it easier to choose things that are more standard than otherwise. So for example, I'm totally making this up. Let's imagine that my that, you know, my SQL is a, is the standard or is, a, is, you know, widely used at our company. Um, so that means there's probably lots of tooling, lots of expertise, lots of help, lots of other services around, you know, my for example, um, well, great. So that it, so that when I'm spinning up a new service or a new project, it should be easier for me to choose. It, I shouldn't be forced to use it if it's not the right fit for it. But uh, but it would be a lot easier. But if it is a good fit or a decent fit, it's easier for me to use that than to go off and you know invent my own database or you know use something else. Does that make sense? So it's more think of think of standardization as less a mandate from above and more an encouragement from below, right? It's just simply easier to do things more like other people because there's so much tooling and useful uh, stuff around it. And, and actually let's think of it the other way. If I make the standard choice, if I choose my SQL and it, why isn't it? I mean, it has to be easier for me to do that than something else. Do you know what I mean? Like, What's what's the point of a standard if I, if we standardized on MySQL? What's the point of the standard if it's not easier than the alternative? D does that make sense? Yes, it does. And sometimes uh, the standardization is just caused by um, licenses and other decisions, but not really making it easier. And so this is really desirable to have a setup like this in a company. Uh, I th I think so. And but you know and and let's t yeah, licenses are a good example. Um, so let's take that into account, you know, um, again, I should, I, as the, I'm, let's say now I'm building the XYZ service in my team. Well, I'm responsible for the cost of my running that, you know, my building and running that service. So if I use something where we have a site license, well, great, you know, that's, that's a cost I don't have to bear. Right. Um, but if I go and, you know, if for whatever reason I make a choice to use, Uh, a different piece of software that has a different license that we now have to pay for, well, that cost should be, I should bear that cost, right? And maybe that's the right choice because it made my productivity so much better and it was exactly the perfect choice, you know, technology choice for what I needed. But I should, but that trade-off should be mine. D does that make sense? Like, again, it's just autonomy, you know, you, you're responsible for making your own choices, but you're also responsible for the results of those choices, the implications of those choices. But, but would you introduce consultants then to the, to the actual teams? Because I think a team of three or still five people is not really capable of keeping track of the costs and the requirements and things like that. And then 
still be able to deliver their code and their solution. So what would you think of having or do you do you have some consultants in this concept of autonomy or some other way of uh, supporting the teams in these decisions? Sure, I guess I wouldn't think of it in terms of consultants as much as and but well, let's back up. I think that I think the broader question that you ask is If we're going to charge people, if we're going to make people responsible for their costs, don't we need to make it easy for them to know what their costs are? And the answer is absolutely yes, right? <laughs> so I don't, um, it will, it would be specific, you know, company by company, what's the best way to do that particular thing? Um, I mean, obviously, in uh, startup environments where they're using a bunch of, you know, cloud services or external services, it's actually really easy to know what things cost, right? Because you're getting charged like directly to the company credit card or something like that. You know what I mean? Um, so, um, but I think the general, the, 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 the sort of broader question behind your question, I, I completely agree with, which is, you know, uh, if we're going to hold everybody responsible for their, for their costs, shouldn't we make it easy? Um, but let's flip it the other way. And um, let's imagine the situation where we have a team that produces a service but doesn't know how much it costs. I mean, that's kind of a problem too, right? I mean, overall, overall in our company, we need to know, you know, what benefit, you know, however we denominate these things, we need to know what benefit we get from the effort that we put into this thing. And we need to know what cost goes into it, right? You know? what people cost, what technology costs, what license costs, and so on. Yeah. And so uh, in the end, it comes down to letting the team simply decide in the end and see what comes out of it. So it's a lot of trust that is getting into the teams. Absolutely. Yes, right. Yeah, there's, I mean, again, autonomy and trust are very closely related. And I think that's the best way to get be the best, I mean, the, the way to get the best work out of people, the best effort, the best effect is to give people ownership. And that includes, you know, again, like I say, the, the, the concept of owning something is both the idea of being able to make choices. That's the autonomy part and the being responsible for the result of those choices. That's the accountability part. Um, and both those things need to go together. Right. And, yeah. you know, for example, if you're, if you're autonomous without being accountable, That's essentially a child, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? You just defined a toddler, um, and I, you know, I have a, I have a seven-year-old. I remember when he was a toddler. That's wonderful, but that's not an adult way of behaving. Um, but being, but then the flip side also doesn't work. Being accountable without being autonomous, right? Like I hold you responsible for hitting these numbers, except you have no ability to influence them. Well, that's wrong too. <laughs> Um, so the only way it can work is if somebody both has the autonomy or the power to make decisions, you know, and the accountability, right? But then in the end, there is a big need of giving feedback in the end and have some sort of feedback loops and um, recurring meetings where you say, okay, um, look, look at the results and look at the things that have been done. Uh, how would you organize this? How would you give feedback in this case and how would you enable the people to get better after getting those feedbacks yeah that's a great question yes um yes implicit and thank you for making that explicit implicit in the idea is that there is feedback of some kind right so that uh again i produce the x i build the and maintain the xyz service well i should get some feedback about whether this is useful Well, one obvious way is, is anybody using it or not, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, in fact, that's almost the best indicator, you know, um, like let's, you know, if we pop up a higher, another level, let's think of a startup. Oh, I have this, I, this wonderful piece of technology and this beautiful, uh, beautiful product, but nobody uses it. Well, okay, that's useless. <laughs> I mean, that's wonderful. Thank you for putting all that effort in, but it's useless. Um, and, you know, same for internal, same for internal services or projects or whatever. So, you know, the best indicator is, is, are people using it? Um, and, you know, more, more precisely, the feedback is around, um, are people getting benefit out of it? Um, 
one way to do it, it's not the only way, but one way to do it is actually to have a concept of an internal economy where if I'm going to use your service, I have to pay you in some way, right? Whether it's real money or fake money or something like that. That's really fundamentally, you know, economists would say that's almost the only way to ultimately figure out what value something has is if somebody's willing to pay for it. Um, but that has to be a real effort on everybody's part to have this have this economy. But um, but but it definitely works. I mean, that's something that you know the concept of internal chargebacks is uh, for the use of other internal services is is a pretty well known idea that's not even just unique to technology companies. But yeah, so other, I mean, obviously there are many different ways of getting feedback about whether a team's work is useful. Again, to me, I think the best ways are the ones that are objective in in terms of, you know, in the sense of like, are people actually using it? What benefit are they getting out of it? There are, I mean, obviously you can do meetings and so on. That would also work, but um, there's kind of no substitute for actually using it or not, right? You know, if nobody's using it, we should probably spend the effort on doing something else. Like, that's okay. doesn't mean people are terrible, but like, let's go do something else because nobody's using this thing, right? Yeah, you're right. I'd like to move a bit forward away from company culture. It is interesting that you sometimes promote technical approaches for non-technical purposes. I think that this is because you are a technician and you are a developer and sometimes we think like this and great solutions come out of it. And one example that comes to my mind is that you introduced so-called DSLs, domain-specific languages, so that developers could extend services without writing actual Scala code. Basically, the example that you're thinking of is, uh, it's more of a template idea, but you know, we wanted to make it really easy for people, this is at KickSci, we wanted to make it easier for people to build new services. So we built something that we called a chassis, like the underbody of a car, you know, that you can build lots of different cars on, right? Um, and uh, and then uh, the same team that built that, here's another example of, you know, autonomy and ownership. Like um, this team did a wonderful job and really exceeded my expectations. We asked them to build the chassis and they ended up building that plus a whole bunch of other tooling around it um, where you could start from a very simple, you can start from a very simple template, um, sort of think of it as a hollowed out, service, right? All the external, all the outside stuff is done for you. And you just write the, if you like the logic of the service, um, instead of the boilerplate to talk to other services or to have other services talk to you. Um, and by using that template, it makes it really easy for developers to get started with an, with a new one. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that is a technology, that is a technology solution to a technology problem, right? I mean, the, the problem that, that, you know, Eight, the problem that we defined for ourselves, one of many, was it was too difficult. You know, we, we knew that we wanted to build new services and isolate them from each other for all the reasons that we know about why services are good. Um, but it was too hard. You know, it was taking weeks and weeks and weeks to build a new service um, because of all the boilerplate that we had, you know, all the difficulties around deploying it and getting it um, uh, configured and and integrating it with the rest of the systems and so on. And we just thought that there was a, there must be a better way. Right. Um, anyway, so, um, so I guess I would say this was an extremely useful technical solution, um, to a problem. I'd call it a technical problem. Um, but I'd love to talk about, I mean, I guess in some sense it, as a, as a side effect, it has nice other benefits because it encourages the kind of organization that I was talking about where, well, if it's really easy to build new, build new services, it makes this particular technology that we put in place where each of them is responsible for one or several related services. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's not so much that the technology solves uh, an organizational problem, but that reinforced the organization. Does that make sense? So that we had small teams and then we made it easy. It made it that much easier for those small teams to get that much more done. Does that make sense? So sort of a false force multiplier or a, or a reinforcement of, uh, of that. So I think it all works together. Yeah, I think this is a great example because you said in your talk that 
um, other teams didn't have to learn Scala to be able to use the service and to extend it. And that's why I, I like this idea of having a DSL there, because this is just the reason why you have DSLs, to enable people who are not able to, to write code in this language uh, to actually use the library and getting things done. So great solution, and I'd like to apply it somewhere in the future for myself. We'll see. Well, it's open, it's open sourced. Wow, it is. Yeah, so check out uh, check out the GitHub page for Kixi. Uh, we again, I, as I mentioned, you know, in the the talk that you're referencing, it was a small team at Kixi that built this chassis. Um, but how they were able to do what they did in the, as rapidly as they were is because they built on you know they stood on the shoulders of giants. So they built very extensively on the Netflix open source, a whole slew of Netflix open source projects. Um, including, well, people will know these words, some of them, you know, Asgard, Hystrix, Ribbon, um, uh, Eureka. Anyway, so a whole bunch of these Netflix open source projects that were around, you know, Netflix has a microservices architecture. So all these, you know, all these projects were individual components that helped with building microservice, building and deploying microservices. And we sort of leveraged those and built on top of them and put them all together, if you like, for our, for our use. And then we open sourced that, you know, we open sourced that combination. Um, so yeah, check it out on, uh, check it out on GitHub. It's, it's pretty neat. Another aspect of collaboration is uh, that teams sometimes need to work really closely on a daily basis. And I've heard of teams that were actually asked, who do you need in addition to that when they were relocated and everyone moved to a different location? Um, do you actually think that teams need to be co-located or is there another solution? And what about multinational companies and teams? Yeah, great. So in my view, so again, let, let's start from the idea that I, I strongly believe that the most effective organizational structure is small teams where the interface, if you like, of that small team to the rest of the organization is very well defined, right? So I build, you know, my team builds the XYZ service and you can call the XYZ service in this particular way. So just a very well, and here's what it does, very well defined interface. Um, and I think that's a good way of building services, right? You know, you'll hear uh, the service approach in, in those words. Um, Uh, but it's also a good way to build organizations. Um, certainly, um, Netflix and Google and Amazon all, and all work that way. Um, so co-location, I think within one of those small teams, it's extremely beneficial if all those people work in the same place, right? Um, that's very helpful because you have very, you need to have very kind of high bandwidth communication with, uh, within that team. Um, so everybody, so, well, let's say it this way, assuming anybody works in an office, right? It's good to have all those teams work together in the same office. You know, I think there are other organizations that are all, everybody's fully remote, lots of great open source projects that work that way. I'm not going to talk about that. Those are also effective ways of organizing, but I won't talk about that. Um, so, okay. So I think within a team, you absolutely need to uh, be co-located, Right. And I also strongly believe in the DevOps idea that if you build it, you run it. So, you know, all the, all the people or all the skill sets that are responsible for, you know, building the software, making sure the software is good quality, running the software, et cetera, all, I believe should all be co-located. Okay. But between teams, there's, to me, there's no strong reason that they need to be co-located. Do you know what I mean? And let's, let's ask the question, why would they need to be? In other words, why would... Why would the team building the XYZ service need to be co-located with a client of the XYZ service? Something like that. Well, if that really is necessary, it means you didn't define the interface very well. <laughs> does, it, does, does it make sense what I say? Because if you, if you need to co-locate, what you're saying is you need to have extremely high bandwidth collaboration. And that's fine. But what that meant is the interface that you that you wrote wasn't very clean. Like it wasn't 
clear how to use it. It wasn't simple. It didn't solve all of a single pro- of a separate problem. So I guess I'd flip it around where if you think teams need to be co-located, they really ought to be the same team. <laughs> and if you have, but if you've defined your, you know, service boundaries, if you like your team boundaries or your interfaces sufficiently cleanly, then, then sometimes it actually can even be an advantage for other teams to be elsewhere. Right. Um, you know, Google has offices all over all over the world, and you know, one ha- I worked in Google App Engine just as an example. Um, you know, one uh, large group of the of the people who worked on App Engine were in um, San Francisco, and you know, another in Mountain View. So we're all close. Um, and then another another group um, when I was there was in Sydney, Australia, um, and that worked great because the. Um, the Australian guys were responsible for sort of individual services within, within app engine. And then when they were, they would take the pager during their daytime and we were, you know, the people in the, you know, California were responsible for another set of internal services. Um, and when you can define those services in a clean way and there are sort of well-defined interfaces between them, then you actually don't need to be talking in person all the time. You know, you need to do it, regularly but not constantly that's a good idea but it kind of destroys this whole subject of home office then so so i was talking about trying to be careful about you know if anybody works in an office then dot 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 so i think there are two kinds of organizations that work well there are organizations where you come to a physical place (laughs) which is what i just described and then there are completely remote organizations where sort of everybody works from their home office. And that's an entire, that also totally works. You know, I've personally not experienced it, but I have, I see it work with lots of companies um, that I'm familiar with. And so it clearly works very well. You just need to organize your whole process around that, make it really easy for everybody to collaborate, even if they're not in the same time zone and not physically together. Right. And there are lots of tools that you can use to do that. Um, what is often a challenge is having one team, and again, I like to have teams to be small, having one of those small teams divided where, you know, some of the people work in the office and others of the people are always remote. That, it's, it's not that that can't work, but that, that has challenges, right? Because, um, to, again, to my mind, there are these two, you know, organizational attractors, you know, like in the sense of, complexity theory and Lawrence and, you know, strange attractors. Like there's an attractor that's around small teams, people co-located in the same physical space. And then there's an attractor around everybody entirely remote. And again, in that everybody entirely remote situation, you're forced as an organization as a, and as a process to, to develop processes where, uh, where you don't have to physically be present at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Um, and when you do that, that can totally work. But the challenge is when the vast, you know, when the majority of the people are behaving as if you just walk over to somebody's desk, but then there are a few people who are never on the same time zone and never physically in the same place. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that's challenging. Um, And again, let me also say that I also strongly believe that, you know, um, I'm talking about people kind of permanently being remote, like obviously for some period of time, you know, couple of weeks or, you know, I need to work from home one or two days a week. I mean, that's totally fine, right? That's, but I'm talking about what's the normal, what's this kind of default standard way of the team working together, you know? As for me, I'm kind of done with my questions. Do you have anything to add to the topic, um, company culture and collaboration? Not much. Although I, uh, I guess what I'd say in closing is, um, I strongly believe that culture is the most important thing that you can, that you can, you know, it's easy. It's, you know, it's relatively easy to change your software development processes. It's relatively easy to change the technologies that you use and the tools. Um, It's very difficult to change your culture. And if the culture is not working right, then no, no amount of, um, technology or process is going to solve it. Um, and when your culture is working very, very well, uh, you know, uh, everything else flows from that. So I guess, you know, um, 
I believe that culture is really, really extremely important. That's the best sentence ever to finish this episode. Some questions about what is going on um, with your talks and everything. People know that you are talking on conferences. Where can someone see you, meet you, hear you talk? Oh, great. Let's see. Um, well, I'm going to be speaking at the QCon San Francisco conference in November. So I hope to see people there. I want to say thank you very much again for talking to us and to me, Randy. It was a great show. Thanks for joining this interview. Uh, thank you, Tobias. I enjoyed it very much. I also want to thank you, listeners, for listening to the episode. We want to know what you think about the show and or this topic, so please go to our website and leave a comment or go to iTunes and write a review. It really helps us produce the content you like. This is Tobias Katz for Software Engineering Radio. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To support us, you can advertise SE Radio by clicking the Dig, Reddit, Delicious, or Slashdot buttons on the site, or by talking about us on Facebook, Twitter, or your own blog. If you have feedback specific to an episode, please use the commenting feature on the site so that other listeners can respond to your comments as well. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks again for your support.